to see you all. We are uh, very fortunate to have such a fantastic and committed group of individuals that lead us every Sunday morning in worship. I hope that you, in your prayers, thank God for these people, not just their talents, their giftings, but just the way that they operate in leading worship in such transparency and in no way trying to draw attention to themselves. It's just the quintessential example of what it's supposed to look like, in my opinion. Uh, 1 Corinthians is a, a corrective epistle. And so the Apostle Paul here, as we begin to wind down this book, is saving his most important correction for last. And what we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the most exhaustive treatment of the resurrection in all of Scripture. J. Vernon McGee said that this is on everybody's top ten list. So if you were to take all the great Bible teachers down throughout the years, they would all say that 1 Corinthians chapter 15 would be among the top ten chapters in all of the Bible on everybody's list. Is that important? So do I have your attention this morning? That's how powerful this passage is in the mind of so many. Now, what were they correcting? What was he correcting? Well, apparently, there were some in that church there in Corinth, not just attending that church, but that had somehow found their way into positions of influence and authority. There were teachers that were teaching literally that there was no resurrection. Now, surprising for us to think that that kind of thing could sneak its way into a Christian church. But I think it's symptomatic of the culture that they were surrounded by there, that Greek culture, indicative of, remember the, the Sadducees, the Sadducees that followed Jesus around? They were that sect of religious leaders that also did not believe in the eternal realm. And the Greek culture was the same way. They outright just rejected the resurrection. They did not believe in the concept of eternity. Now, the problem with that, and you tell me if this sounds familiar, but the problem with a rejection or even an agnosticism of the idea of the resurrection or the eternal realm is that a society that believes that will look like that Greek culture's motto, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. It's a bankrupt philosophy that leads to something known as hedonism in which pleasure is the only intrinsic good value in this world. Any city, any country, any culture, any group of people, even a church that lives in a state in which they reject the concept of eternity, the idea of heaven and hell, that there will be a resurrection someday will ultimately fall into hedonism and that will result in the most bizarre kinds of unexplained behavior in that society and in that culture. And hey, why not? Despite what you might hear, crime does pay. One out of every, it's been estimated, thousand people that commit a crime are actually caught, tried, and do time in prison for committing that crime. So why not sell drugs? Why not cheat on your taxes? And on the flip side, why obey God? 
Why obey God if there is ultimately no accountability from God, if there's no punishment someday, if there's no reward from God someday? What's the purpose in obeying God? Well, you see, this is the philosophy that had somehow snuck its way into this church in Corinth. And so the Apostle Paul basically, look, if this is the proposition that's on the table, that there is no life after death, then the only thing the Apostle Paul has to do to disprove this proposition, not to bring forth and present to them 500 or even 20 examples, but just one. Just one exception is all it takes to demonstrate that this teaching was a farce. And so he begins with the single greatest documentation of resurrection in the history of the world, and that is of Jesus Christ himself, not just to prove that Jesus rose from the dead, though he will give us plenty of evidence here in this chapter for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but to demonstrate that there is, in fact, a resurrection from the dead. So, beginning in verse 1, chapter 15, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So the Apostle Paul, when he came to Corinth, he brought with him the full gospel. We're going to see in just a couple minutes, in verses 3 and 4, what that means, what the complete gospel is. But the complete gospel consists of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says, that's what I brought to you, and that's what you believed in unless you believed in vain. To believe in vain, in other words, you can agree with the things that Jesus taught. You can agree with the things that he stood for. You can make it your personal code in life that aligns with what Jesus taught and intellectually say, yeah, I like that man. He's a good teacher. You can even acknowledge that he died on the cross for your sins. But if you fall short in that belief in accepting the resurrection as the means of the justification unto salvation in my life, then you believe in vain because you do not believe in a full gospel. See, the fact of the matter is, is that we cannot and are not allowed to kind of roll our own spin on salvation. It is not up to a person to determine or define for themselves how we attain salvation. When did we get to the point in this society where people started believing that what they think about something is more important than what actually is or what God says or what's in God's word? But that's the society that we live in today. Just last week, I was watching a, a news show, and there was a woman that was being interviewed who is a professor of theology at the University of Notre Dame. And she said on this news show, I'm not making this up, she said that Jesus said that in order to go to heaven, you have to give away all of your stuff. Okay, I know what passage she's getting that from, and I'm going to talk about that in a second. But first of all, she had stuff with her. She was wearing clothes and makeup. Apparently, she had had her hair done, so she either went to the salon 
or she had products at home by which to get her hair done. She had cab fare or gas money in order to get to the new set that night. It doesn't make any sense at all. Think about a world in which the only way in which you could go to heaven is you'd have to give away all your stuff. If that were true, then I would be damning to hell whoever I would give my stuff to because then they would own stuff. Doesn't even make any sense. If I had a shirt, I'm like, I outgrew this shirt, I'm going to give it to Pastor Mike, and Pastor Mike's going to be like, I don't want this shirt. No, you take it. No, you take it. No, you take it. We're going to play hot potato because everyone wants to go to heaven. Not to mention that, of course, once again, here's a professor of theology. Just goes to show you that God is not impressed with academia. Because who's smarter than this woman? She's taking the whole story out of context. You know the story. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And he says, basically, that he's kept all the commandments from birth. Well, Jesus knew that he had not. But rather than get into an argument with him, Jesus extends the law to help people understand that everybody is a sinner. He said, go and take all of your stuff and give it away to the poor and then follow me. And we know the rich young ruler went away sad because he did not want to do that. Jesus was not saying you have to give away all your stuff to go to heaven. He was merely pointing out that you can be guilty of sins of commission, but also be guilty of sins of omission. The Bible says, he who knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. He was merely establishing what he had been establishing all along, that that young man was a sinner, even if he thought in his own mind he was not. The Bible says all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. So it is not up for us to come along and take a scene and then translate that in our own minds for a political agenda in order to establish a different kind of gospel, which is what she was doing. Indeed, the full gospel is taught in the scriptures again and again and again. It cannot be denied, and Paul lays it out very cl clearly here in verses 3 and 4, and it is the gospel according to the scriptures, not according to what's politically correct today, or politics, or my opinion, or theology, or whatever the case may be. It's right here, verse 3. For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, once again, according to the scriptures. Now that right there is the gospel. Quite simply, three parts. The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now what we see here in verses 3 and 4 are two historical facts that are spelled out for us. Another historical fact that is inferred and then another conclusion that you must come to by the weight of the evidence, okay? Historical fact number one, Jesus Christ died on the cross. Okay, that's a historical fact. Nobody questions that. There are no critical scholars in the world today that deny that Jesus Christ died on the cross, okay? That's fact number one. Fact number two was that Jesus Christ was buried, and he was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. There are no scholars in the world today, critical or otherwise secular or Christian, that deny that Jesus Christ was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. I've seen many, many, many debates. I've got a stack full of them at home between a Christian and an unbeliever, and none of them try to argue that Jesus died and that he was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Okay, these are historical facts that not one person on the planet that knows anything or is a historian of any nature tries to deny.
Okay, so now to the third fact that is inferred here, which is, and uh, proclaimed throughout the New Testament, by the way, the empty tomb. That the tomb is empty. And, by the way, there are also very few legitimate critical scholars, secular or Christian, that deny the reality of the empty tomb. Why? Because you can go there today, and it's empty. There's nothing in it, so there's an empty tomb. So you have the death of Christ, the burial, and you have an empty tomb. Now, if the empty tomb was and is empty, the best explanation for that empty tomb was that Jesus Christ rise from the dead. But Paul, being this great legal mind, being someone who doesn't want to leave things to chance here, as thorough as he is, he now begins, as we continue, to call witnesses to the stand that can testify to the validity of the resurrection, this resulting conclusion, as I said, that comes from these facts, these historical facts, that are not in dispute. So the question is, do we have evidence to believe that the resurrection is true? And he says, verse 5, and that he was seen by Cephas. That's Peter, right? So apparently, Jesus had a private meeting with the apostle Peter before he met with the other disciples. We don't know exactly when that takes place. We know Luke refers to that in the discussion with the disciples on the road to Emmaus. You can look that up later. But we don't know when that takes place or the substance of that conversation. But we know he must have seen him before he saw the rest of them because it says he was seen by Cephas and then, end of verse 5, by the twelve. And the twelve is a term to refer to the disciples that followed Jesus during his earthly ministry. It does not necessarily mean exactly the number 12. That term was used for them. So this is not a contradiction in the Bible, as we know that Thomas was not there that night, and Judas had already hanged himself that Sunday night. But the group, which was referred to as the 12, were there. And by the way, just so you know, you remember the story, right? What were they doing that night? Even though it seems Peter had already seen Jesus. That's what he's saying, right? He made an appearance to Peter, then the twelve. So even though Peter had seen Jesus, they were huddled up in a room with the doors shut for fear of the religious leaders. So another wonderful, tremendous evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ was what we see from the disciples, from the apostles, after they see Jesus, the resulting this incredible bravery from a group that had previously been cowardice. They ran for their lives when Jesus was arrested and crucified. And then after the resurrection, they became bold. And all but one of them suffered a martyr's death, according to church history. Verse 6, after that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. So that blows away any idea of a hallucination theory um, because nobody believes in group hallucinations. That's not a scientific thing unless you're in Vegas watching a magic show or something like that. But nobody believes anything along those lines. So there's no hallucination. He's appeared to over 500 brethren at once. But look what Paul says. This is even more important. Of whom the greater part remain to this present. That is, when this was written, he says, but some have fallen asleep. So some had died, but most of those 500 were still alive when Paul wrote this. 
which means the people in Corinth could have gone and interrogated those people. So you got Charlie down the street who owns a horseshoe making business or whatever. They could just go to Charlie and say, did you see Jesus? Yeah, I saw him. I was one of the 500 who was there that day. There were people alive. He puts this in the scriptures in his letter for them so that they could, if they wanted to, have gone and asked questions of those people to see that that was really the case. Now, even more compelling than that. Verse 7. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Now, we know that there were apostles other than the 12, people like Barnabas, okay? So, this is not necessarily the disciples. This is a different group here. But we also know that then this is James here in verse 7 is not James the apostle, the son of Zebedee, who walked with Jesus, but more likely James, the author of James, and the half-brother of Jesus. Now, why is that important? His testimony is so important because, like the rest of Jesus' half-brothers, they were not believers in Jesus during his public ministry. And can you blame them? If you grow up, and somewhere along the way, you turn about 25 or 30-ish or something like that, and your brother starts telling people he's God, you might have a hard time at first accepting that to be the case. So what changed James? It's very important. It was the resurrection, right? The resurrection changed him. But even more important than that, please take note, mental note of this. Even if Jesus had resurrected from the dead, if he was not who he claimed to be, James would have known because he had the goods on him. There's no way James would have allowed the early church to believe that Jesus was God, which he claimed to be, which James was aware of, if he saw him kick the cat growing up, if he saw him mouth off at his mom when he was in a young age. So James, seeing the resurrection, has changed, and he looks back at his life and goes, yeah, he was perfect. And so his testimony is very important. And maybe the most important testimony of them all, verse 8, then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. So Paul says you can add my name to that list as well. And the reason why the Apostle Paul's testimony might be the most important is because nobody, nobody wanted to not believe in the resurrection more than Paul did, more than Saul of Tarsus before he was Paul. And that might be why he lists himself last here. In fact, it is indicative, I think, in a way of the way that he looked at himself when placed alongside the rest of these witnesses. Because he says in verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Hunting down arresting and even consenting to the deaths of Christians ferociously, the Apostle Paul did. Interesting, though, he then refers to himself as the least of the apostles because of that. It's fascinating to me that Paul never forgot what he once was. He didn't allow it to paralyze him. He didn't prevent him from doing the things that God had called him to do. But he never got so far down the road as a Christian that he forgot about how amazing God's grace was 
in his life and what it was that God had saved him from. Jesus once said something along these lines. He who has been forgiven much loves much. And so as Christians, if you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, I think it's good to never, ever, ever lose the awe of what he has saved you from. You know, sometimes, and I know from experience, so I'm not picking on you this morning, but sometimes you can be in church because it's Sunday and you're supposed to be in church. And there's a little bit of that, that freshness in worship that isn't there. There's something dull in your heart. Maybe even now as you're trying to listen, but you're having a hard time because there's conflict in your life, so to speak. And what God does, though he throws our sins as far east as is the West, God sometimes comes along and reminds me of what I once was and what he saved me from, what he continues to deliver me from to this day, what he continues to look past in my life and still love me just the same. And Paul never lost sight of that. He says, verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. So before anybody ever started saying, I am what I am, or it is what it is, Paul said, I am what I am. But it's so true, isn't it? Where would you be this morning in life but for the grace of God? Just think about that. So if you're tempted at all to tune out or not worship from the bottom of your heart or not fellowship or not read your Bible this week, think about where you would be without the grace of God of God. Paul never forgot. He said, and his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. And so he covers all these witnesses from Peter to the 12 to the 500 to the half-brothers of Jesus to Paul himself and they all would preach the same thing the death the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that's how they had come to believe Paul said that's that's where it came from that's where your belief comes from was a resurrected savior and so now as he sort of continues here kind of picking up where we set up in our introduction this morning he talks about the ramifications of not believing in the resurrection, the consequences of living in denial of the reality of eternity. Everything, by the way, that you believe in, this issue is of utmost importance, of all the issues, but everything you believe in has consequences. What you believe, good or bad, about personal stewardship has consequences. Everything that you believe about health, good or bad, has consequences. Everything that you believe about hard work has consequences. But the greatest consequences stem from what you believe about the reality of eternity. Okay, and that's the point that he's making here. He's saying, all right, you don't want to believe some of you in Corinth in the resurrection. Let's just follow this through. Let's just carry this through a little bit and see what this leads to as we work this through. Okay, let's just think this through. Verse 12, 
Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Isn't that interesting? They weren't just preaching that Christ was not risen. It was worse than that. They were saying there is no resurrection, period. Well, if Christ is a part of the resurrection and you say there is no resurrection, then Paul says then that means Christ himself is not risen. And verse 14, if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Everything I say, everything we believe, everything you hear, all the books, all the things the Old Testament prophets said, all the things that the apostles said, it's empty. And our faith is empty. No gospel, the good news, can be good news if it doesn't address the issue of death. You think about it, what exactly would we have faith in? What exactly would we have hope for? It's the basic point that he's making. We would have an empty kind of faith because your faith would be in a dead man. He says, yes, verse 15, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And so then we're all liars. I'm a liar. You're a liar. Anybody who um, claims to be a born-again believer in Jesus Christ testifies to the resurrection of Christ. That's become true in your heart, sealed by the Holy Spirit's testimony himself. So you're a liar. Old Testament prophets are liars because they pointed to the resurrection as well. The apostles are liars. Paul's a liar. We're all false witnesses, he said, if Christ is not risen. And, verse 17, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. It's pointless. It doesn't do you any good. And you're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're just dead. And they're in Christ, they're believers, the people that have died, they're just dead. If there's no resurrection. And then he says, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. And that is the final consequence that he lays out there. That if there is no resurrection from the dead, then as Christians, we are the ones to be most pitied because we are living our lives for a lie. We are giving our lives. We are laying down our lives. We are so dominated. We should be more so. But we are so dominated by our belief in Christ, which then would be a lie. If there's no heaven, if there's no resurrection, then he says our preaching is empty, our faith is futile, we're false witnesses, and he says we're still in our sins. But by the way, I don't see why that would matter at all. 800 million years from now, rotting in a grave, what would it make any difference at all whatsoever? Whether I was a Christian or a Muslim, a good Samaritan or a crook, wouldn't make any difference if there is no resurrection from the dead. And so although I don't want to go too far into this next section because we're going to save the bulk of it for next time, I think it's important that we don't leave ourselves hanging 
on that idea because he's proposing this if there is no resurrection, if there is no resurrection, if there is no resurrection, when in reality, he says in verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man, lowercase m, came death, by man, uppercase m, meaning Jesus, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Interesting contrast between Adam and Christ. People talk about Adam and Christ as Adam being the first Adam and Christ being the second Adam. And the reason why is because they're both a picture of like our champion of the human race. Adam, the only uh, man that was ever born perfect besides Christ. And that's why they are a type of each other. He was born without sin. Every single one of us were born with a sin nature, the Bible says. You were a sinner born that way. <laughs> Nothing you could do about it. You were a sinner upon conception, the Bible says. But Adam was not. Adam was created perfect. And so Paul is basically saying, look, you have no problem as a church believing that by the effect of one man's decision, the human race fell. But for some reason, you have a problem believing that by one man's act of his rising from the dead that we all would rise. Why is that? You accept concerning yourselves that you're sinners because of Adam. Why can't you accept concerning yourselves that you will rise because of Jesus? And so he said there, in Christ all shall be made alive. Now, does that mean that everyone will be resurrected? And the answer to that question is yes and no. All will be resurrected in the sense that they will all live for eternity. But Jesus himself spoke of the difference between the resurrection unto life and the resurrection unto condemnation. And very clearly there, Paul is specific when he says, even so in Christ, all shall be made alive. So eternal life in heaven with Christ comes to those who are in Christ and those who are in Christ alone. And so again, what we're coming to this morning is this idea that by the way, we all know, even before you came a Christian, before you became a Christian, even if you're here this morning and you don't know the Lord, everybody instinctively knows that he's right. Everybody knows deep down, instinctively, that there must be something beyond this lifetime. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, Solomon said that God has placed the concept of eternity on the hearts of all men and women. Again, instinctively, intuitively, people know that they will stand before Almighty God someday. I'll never forget, some of you heard me say this before, but I'll never forget. Driving down the roads one day, I turned on the radio and there was this comedian talking about religion. And anytime anybody's talking about religion, my ears perk up. And this uh, guy basically started off this way. He said, I'm an atheist. 
I do not believe in God. In fact, I strongly disbelieve in the existence of God. I just hope that he won't hold it against me. Now, why do people chuckle at that except that they know that he's right? They know instinctively that people will live their lives in denial of God even though they know that there is a God. In fact, Romans 1 tells us how they're able to do that. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They hold down the truth because they love their sin more than they love the light. And so they don't want to believe what they instinctively and intuitively believe to be true. So they live sort of in a self-denial kind of way. Self-denial is the only way that you can do it. Think about it. Isn't it interesting? If you look at any kind of polls, most people in America, the United States of America, 75% of Americans believe in the reality of heaven. They believe that they will go there to spend eternity there when they die. Now, I am so glad that we live in a country where 75% of Americans firmly believe that they're going to go to heaven someday. I mean, imagine what a society would be like that didn't believe in the reality of eternity. You may remember that John Lennon posed that question many, many years ago. He said, imagine there's no heaven. Imagine there's no hell. Imagine people living for today. He said, it isn't hard to do. And you know, it wasn't hard to do then, and now it's very simple to look around and see people living for today and not believing in heaven and believing in hell. Imagine that. Imagine a society that says they believe in heaven and hell, but doesn't believe in heaven and hell. I'm so glad that that's not us. I'm so glad the United States of America is filled with 75% of people that believe in heaven and hell firmly and live their lives as if that was the case. I mean, imagine for a minute, because it isn't hard to do, a society that doesn't believe in eternity. What would that society look like? Just think about it. Probably that society would be obsessed with youth. They would probably try to do everything that they could to stay young. They would spend millions and millions of dollars to try and look and feel and stay young. They'd try to find the, the fountain of youth. They'd, I don't know, invest millions and millions of dollars in plastic surgery to make themselves look younger. We'd probably be flooded with all kinds of commercials and infomercials selling the latest uh, gadget to help ourselves feel better, uh, the latest weight loss craze so that we'd be healthier, so that we could live longer. If we didn't believe in heaven, that probably what our society would look like. We'd probably also spend billions of dollars on medical research, my guess is, and on equipment to try to stave off death somehow. We'd probably look into some sort of cryogenic freezing process, you know, like from uh, the Empire Strikes Back, so that we could take people, we probably have a few hundred people and animals that are frozen right now currently in our society, so that we could revive them once we found the cure for the common death somewhere down the road. That's probably what it would look like. We'd probably also, if we didn't believe in heaven and hell, imagine that, we'd probably have a steady uh, rise in crime and evil. Because if people didn't believe in heaven and hell, I mean, there'd be no ramifications for what you did. Why not go out and do whatever suits my fancy? And that crime and evil would probably get even more wicked as time goes along. Because, hey, if you're going to go down, why not go down in infamy? If it's not going to matter at all after you're dead anyway. 
And by the way, if we lived in a society that didn't believe in heaven or hell, imagine that. I mean, imagine. If we believed in a society that didn't believe in heaven or hell, then probably also religion would reflect that also. And instead of talking about sin and repentance and heaven and hell, instead we would talk about the things that affect our lives now. We would talk about things like health and wealth and prosperity. And I'm so glad that there's nobody doing that, that there's nobody on TV packing auditoriums talking about health and wealth and prosperity. At some point you're starting to pick up some of the sarcasm in my tone this morning. <laughs> Here's the reality. The reality is that we give lip service, most, most people do, to the idea of heaven and hell, but we don't, as Americans, walk in light of eternity. By the way, there are extreme consequences for that kind of thinking. The worst of which is a society that does not believe in the resurrection, has no rationally compelling reason to accept Christ's love offering upon that cross of Calvary at all. If you're here this morning and you believe that there is no resurrection, even though you instinctively, intuitively have been shown in your heart that there is, then you'll have no reason to accept Christ's sacrifice because his sacrifice was all about you're a sinner and without him, you cannot go to heaven, period. That's the worst consequence of all. And so the fact that ever that kind of thinking would infiltrate a church or even at times try and interrupt our thinking in terms of what we believe as Christians, not only does it prevent people from coming to Christ, it prevents us those of you who are here that are Christians from living lives with the right perspective. Because Christians that believe more so in the validity of everlasting life will live lives that reflect that, right? And this is a challenge for us this morning because I know most of you here in the room are believers in Christ. And so the challenge, I think, for us this morning is, do our lives reflect that we believe that this life is but a vapor and that eternal life is waiting for everyone we know? And that's an important challenge for us this morning. Father, we thank you, praise you for your word, and we thank you for uh, the truth of the resurrection. I don't know if it's sunk in yet. It's kind of surreal for all of us, God, until we're there someday. And that day may be soon. It'll be a vapor to us. Pretty much everyone here in this room, Lord, probably remembers what it was like to be a kid. And now most of us are at least at the halfway point. And Lord, the, the joy that we have of knowing that you have sent your son to pay the price that our lives will never end, that we'll be resurrected to eternal life and that of a perfect paradise, and that we'll get to lay our eyes 
on the Lord Jesus. To think that we'll get to have a conversation audibly with the Lord Jesus. To think, God, that we'll get a hug from our Savior. To think that we'll spend eternity with no more tears. Lord, what greater truth could there possibly be? And God, this world is missing out on that so terribly. And Lord, I don't want to put a trip on these folks any more than I want to feel a trip. But Lord, I just pray, I just ask in Jesus' name today again that you would embolden us empower us God encourage us and strengthen us to live lives that demonstrate to people around us that don't know you that we have an unswerving belief in eternity and that we are unmoved unafraid by death because we're convinced that we're going to be resurrected someday. In Jesus' name. to me. 
sure hope that you don't think that God sent his son into this world to just check it out. I sure hope you don't think that God sent his son into this world to give you a, a code of ethics by which you govern your life. And I sure hope you don't think that God allowed his son's body to be crushed upon that cross so that we would all marvel at his good moral teaching. No, he sent his son into this world to endure the pain and the shame of the cross that has carried forward now 2,000 years, the most impactful event in the history of the world without any shadow of a doubt, that we would believe on him whom he sent. And if that's you, as I am, two in that category this morning, then let's take the bread together today. Never in the scriptures is the resurrection not directly tied to the death and the burial. You have a basically sad but meaningless event without the resurrection. It just doesn't matter. Lots of people were crucified. Lots of people have been put to death. Lots of them. Some of them maybe unjustly, along with Jesus. But what you have without the resurrection is just a sad story. Always, always in Scripture is the resurrection tied. Even when the Apostle Paul gives his communion address, and he, he says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Well, how can he come? If he's dead, unless he rose. 
So always is the resurrection tied to the death and the burial of Jesus Christ. And it is in that full gospel by which we stand this morning. If you take this. Wow. 
some prayer. Come on down front rows and dentists are down here. God bless you, everyone. <laughs> 